0: You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Good morning, Northway. Great to see all of you. How are you today? Awesome, okay. My name is Brady Goodwin, and I have the honor of serving as one of the pastors here and the privilege of opening God's word with you this morning. We're continuing our series in the book of Genesis, and I wanna invite you to open in your Bibles to Genesis chapter two. We're going to look at Genesis 2, verses 4 through 17 this morning. Uh, Genesis 2, verses 4 through 17. I'll give you a moment to uh, get there, and then we'll read this passage, and we'll pray, and we'll begin. All right, Genesis 2, starting in verse 4. Um, God's Word says this. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush, You shall surely die. This is God's word. Let's pray as we begin. Father, as we reflect upon this passage of your your word, we thank you that you have given it to us. And we pray that you will help us to see how a close look at the beginnings of the story of your image bearers sets the stage for the work of redemption that you have completed through Jesus Christ. We pray that as we reflect upon our own lives and the stories you have woven into them, that they would be testimonies to your grace, of your provision, of your faithfulness, of your goodness. Help us as we look at this passage to rejoice at your work and that our stories would reflect the glory of your story. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. I wanna begin this morning by talking about a few things that are true about today. It is 1141 AM, did you know that? Now you do. You came from some place and you are now here in this room. Before you entered this room, uh, I don't know where you parked Uh, You are wise and came to the 1115 service, so you may have parked in our parking lot. If you had come to the 9, you would have parked in Richardson. Um, But you're here, and you came from some place. Your morning may have included things like making coffee, making tea, having breakfast, having conflict with your kids, or your spouse, or whoever it may be in your life. You came into this room thinking particular thoughts about your life and your day. If we we take a step back and we consider the context of our life, there are things that we are coming into this room concerned about, worrying over, frustrated with, things that fill our hearts with sorrow. What's also true about This morning, in this exact moment, is that you are here by divine appointment. You are in this room because God has intended for you to be in this room. You are living the life that you live by his purposeful ordering. He loves you. He loves you to such an extent that there is nothing in your life that comes to pass by chance. There is nothing that is outside the scope of his loving care. So the question that I want to ask you as we begin is, are you living in the real world? Are you living with an understanding of the truth of God's world and your life in it? Or is it something different? Does your understanding of yourself, of other people, of the things that happen to you, of God himself, does it reflect reality? Or does it reflect something else? We all share that innate human impulse to construct a story that makes sense of our lives. Those stories image the pain and disappointment of our losses. And they reveal the values that animate our existence. They display our perspective of our world. And so we have to ask is my story true? Is it real? I suspect that while many of us believe our stories to be an accurate accounting of the way things really are, they may actually be less than that. Our stories may capture true experiences, but they can also lack a sense of order, of peace, of meaning, of rest. There is in each of them a certain kind of uneasiness, an unseen anxiety about the stability of life and its purposes. To put it another way, our stories so often reflect the ancient words of Augustine in his book, Confessions, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. You and I could apply this to the concept of our own story in this way. Our stories are meant to point to you. And they will not be fully true until they are true in you. Of course, the Bible tells a story. And it's a story that claims to be the story of humanity. That story centering on Jesus Christ promises true rest to all who would come by faith in his name. The passage that we read today represents one of the most significant early chapters of this story, of humanity's original rest in our creator, of the way things were in the beginning. And so as we think a little bit more closely about this passage, We're going to try to tackle three questions that I hope help give some sense of meaning to what we're thinking about in our own lives this morning. First, what does this passage tell us about the story of humanity? What does it show us about the story of humanity? Second, how do we construct different stories to explain our lives? Not if we do this, not whether we do this, but how do we construct different stories to explain our lives? And then third, how does this first chapter lead to a greater story, a story that we all need? So what does this passage tell us about the story of humanity? How do we construct different stories to give meaning to our life? And how does this first, this first chapter preview the greater story that we all need? Okay, first, what does this story tell us about The story. What does this passage tell us about the story of humanity? Every great story has a prologue that introduces its major character and setting. In the Bible, Genesis 1.1 to Genesis 2.3 is that prologue. We've seen this over the last few weeks, that there is a God who has created all things, that we see the world he has created, and we have a high-level view of the creatures that inhabit it. That first chapter of creation presents a grand view what often is referred to as creation in the air. It's this high-level picture. But beginning with Genesis 2, verse 4, and the passage that we read this morning, we see a zoomed-in account of creation on the ground. This is part one of two of Genesis 2 and the picture of life in the garden. Shay, will come back next week and look at the second half. But this section introduces the specifics of how God created humanity and placed them into the Garden of Eden. So what we see in verse 4 is the title. We read it already, but we'll see it again. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, on the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. A couple of things for us to note here. First, that phrase, these are the generations... Back in week one of our series, Shea talked about the structural outline of the book of Genesis, and he introduced us to an idea called the Toledo structure. That is the Hebrew transliteration of this phrase. These are the generations. We've got these chapter markers in our Bible, but those are relatively recent, only about 500 years old. In the book of Genesis, this phrase is what sets apart the different sections of the narrative. There's 11 total, and this is the first one. It shows us a new section of the narrative that helps us understand what follows in the story. This one's going to go all the way up to the end of chapter 4 and covers the first two generations of humanity. Second, Genesis 2, verse 4 is the first time that we see the covenant personal name of God. In Genesis 1, God is always referred to in the generic term Elohim, but in Genesis 2, 4, we see the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. We've already said this, but now we see it in clear ways that the creator in Genesis is no generic God, but the personal covenant-keeping God who stands above all others. And third, the way this verse is structured helps us to see that it is a specific continuation of the narrative of Genesis 1. In past years, critical scholars would look at Genesis 2 as some sort of separate account that did not come from the same place as Genesis 1, but this is not the case. There is a parallel structure here that in its wording has the effect of telling the reader, let's look more closely at what it was like on that day when God created man and woman. So that's the title. Verses 5 and 6 give us the setting. We see that There was no bush in the field yet in the land, no small plant of the field had yet sprung up because the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. If we think back to day three of creation, we saw that God brought forth vegetation, plant life and trees bearing fruit. Now on the sixth day, we see that though there was this kind of flourishing on the earth, it existed in what we might call its untended condition. There was no one there to cultivate and bring forth the first fruits through the labor of people. And in the same way, we see this phrase, God had not yet caused it to rain on the land. There was was not yet the scars of the flood from Genesis 6 that we will learn about in subsequent weeks. Instead, there is this kind of canvas, that we are about to see some work being done as humanity enters the picture. When we get to verse seven, we see the main action of this first chapter. We see the creation of humanity in specific ways. One pastor, a man by the name of R. Kent Hughes, describes three different things that are happening in this text. God is describing humanity's nature, his position, and his responsibility. And so in verse seven, we see this nature. God creates, the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Unlike the other creatures that God called into existence, he formed the first human being of earth, And he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, which though is similar to what we saw in Genesis 1.30, is not the same phrase. It's distinct. Humanity is not like the other creatures that God has made. He bears God's image. But in verse 8, God does something else as well. He creates a garden where he will place man in his position. In the Garden of Eden, God causes trees to grow that will provide food for the man. It is here that we also see the first mention of two specific trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Nothing else is said here about these trees besides their names, but like all good storytellers, the characters are being introduced that are going to have significant impact as the narrative unfolds. Verses 10 through 14 give us a geographic description of this garden and it places it in what would today be uh, modern day Iraq. Though the specific location is difficult to determine because even though the Tigris and Euphrates are still existing rivers, nobody really knows where the Pishon and Gihon, however they may be pronounced, are actually located. Verses 15 through 17 then describe man's responsibility. What is it that God has called man to do? God places the man in the garden to work and keep it. There are specific verbs used here that describe both the physical labor that Adam was to engage in, but also the spiritual connection. This is him working the land as unto the Lord. God also gives the very first commands of Scripture. One command that describes God's provision, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Another of prohibition and a call to obedience, that you may not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So as we think about the introduction of this story in an on-the-ground way, a more focused way, And we look at the original characteristics of man's nature, his position, his responsibility. This helps us to understand several features of the story of humanity as it was in the beginning. And this is very important for us because as we will see next week, what existed in the garden before the entrance of sin reflects how God designed us to function in his world. How it was in the beginning gives us a picture of what it is supposed to be. And so first, thinking about our own nature, this passage shows that God has created us, that we are finite, we are from dust. Think of Psalm 90, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom, for we are dust and to dust we will return. In other words, we are creatures, but creatures whom God loves in a unique way and who relates to us as a personal, knowable God. As we said in the introduction, what this means is that God loves you. He has created you and he intends for you to know and love him. Second, regarding our position, just as God placed Adam in a specific location and provided for all his needs and his story from day one is a story of tender fatherly care and of intentional purpose and meaning. In the same way, God has authored your story. He is the author of your story. And he intends for you to see your life as a reflection of his purposeful action. That he is at work. Third, regarding our responsibility, we saw in verse 17 that in the beginning, people were called to submit to the rule of God. This wasn't some kind of restrictive decree to correct wrongdoing, but it was God's wise design so that we might experience ultimate freedom and provision. To put it another way, God's original intent was for us to live in submission to his kindly rule. We were created for that. What this means for you and I is that we will find our greatest freedom as we relate to God as Lord. It's where freedom will truly be found. So the story of humanity then is the story of loving creation purposeful provision and divine rule. Human beings find their utmost rest when their stories reflect these understandings. And if the narrative of my life or your life differs, we should be unsurprised by the latent restlessness that we feel. This, of course, leads to that second question. We talked about the story of humanity and its beginning, but what are those different stories that we tell to explain our lives? Okay, back in 2016, I heard about this must see movie. Maybe you've heard of it La La Land. You seen that movie? Yup. I loved it. I mean, loved it. I have friends who don't like musicals, testimony to God's grace that we are friends. I loved the music, I loved the cinematography, I loved the way that it highlighted L.A. culture. I'm not from L.A., but I've been there a couple of times, think I'm cool when I go. And it's a, it's a really cool thing, I just a really unique, creative movie. And then I got to the end, and I hated it. It's been six years since it came out, so I'm gonna tell you what happens. It's on you, if you've not seen this movie. Two characters. You know, just dancing their way into each other's hearts. And then at the end, they break up, okay? No surprise there. That's what rom-coms do. They break up and then they get back together. But no, she gets married to some other dude. And Ryan Gosling's playing his sad jazz music in a club and Emma Stone sees him and then they daydream about what could have been. In scene. What? Like, that was terrible. I was furious when I watched that movie because it was one of those 95% wonderful, 5% tragic. And I went, Ugh. You have to have correct proportions. It doesn't work if they're not there. But why did this movie bother me so much? Eventually, I went back and I watched it again, and it was better. I understood the narrative arc, why the director chose to do what he did, but I still didn't like it. The reason I didn't like it is because the story didn't match my way of seeing the world. It's a dumb ending. It's no redemption. It's just brokenness. There was overlap. There were true things to enjoy about that movie, but there was ultimately a disconnect. Our stories often work the same way. There are ways in which our stories and the perspective or worldviews that inform them align with the way things truly are in God's world, but in so many ways, there is this disconnect. As I was thinking about this week, there were three ways that I thought might be helpful for us to discuss some of the ways that disconnect shows up. The first of these is what Scripture will refer to as selfish ambition. Ambition on its own is not a bad thing. It's not bad to desire advancement or achievement. But this is referring to a term that shows up a few different times in the New Testament that always describes working or laboring specifically for earthly, temporal, or material gain for our own ends. This kind of ambition shows up as the unrestrained desire for success in our careers. So it could mean pursuing a vocation that we believe will lead to wealth for the express purpose of having or accumulating wealth for one's own advantage. It could mean a trajectory designed to lead to the greatest amount of affirmation or recognition in one's given field. Some of us don't work in fields that make a lot of wealth. But we do want other people to see us as something. In these situations, our work is not for the Lord, but for ourselves. Selfish ambition may also involve seeking to establish our relative superiority or supremacy over another person or a group of people. It could be our political appetites. It could be the often unacknowledged undercurrents of racist thinking in our minds, belittling speech or behavior that comes at the expense of other people. In all of those situations, it reflects what James will say in his letter in James 3.16, where selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Whatever its expression of ambition of this sort does not lead to rest or peace. A second way that our stories diverge, in addition to selfish ambition, is through what we could call determinism. And by determinism, I mean an outlook on our world where our circumstances, our victories, or our failures, and thus our sense of identity and well being, are determined by the world outside of us. Usually, we only adopt this perspective when we see our circumstances as primarily negative. When things are going well, we're not really worried about it. We take the credit. (laughs) But when things are bad, we try to find someone to blame. try to find someone who we believe is responsible. So we protest the loss and pain that we experience through suffering. We seethe with anger at what we believe to be the wrongs others have committed against us. And we take on the mindset of a victim. We look to other people to place blame, believing that if things had been different, our lives would be okay. We justify then our rebellious choices, saying to ourselves that because of what happened to us, it doesn't really matter what we do. When we do this, we mimic the description that Paul gives recounting his life before Christ when he wrote to Titus and said in Titus 3.3, that we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. A third and final way that our stories diverge from Scripture is through cultural imitation. Cultural imitation is us living according to the expectations and longings of our sociological surroundings rather than the priorities of Scripture. Cultural imitation in Dallas is particularly common. It's all over the place. And it looks like an excess emphasis on travel, leisure, fashion, social media, having the right house and the right things, and not getting in the way of how other people choose to live their lives. The problem with cultural imitation, however, is that to imitate the culture is ultimately to assimilate into that culture. If you and I try to live like the rest of Dallas, you and me will come to embrace what our city values over and against what God values. We will look less and less like people who live as salt and light in a world in need of Christ's love and more like the rest of our city, which presumes a kind of needlessness and self-sufficiency, leaving very little room for Jesus. We will become like Demas, who was a companion of Paul, and Paul describes in two letters as one of his co-laborers in the gospel. But in his final letter, towards the end of his life to his disciple Timothy, he tells Timothy that Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. The sad reality is that in a room with as many people as this, it is highly likely that the same will be said of some of us. And so the truth is that my life, and I suspect yours as well, have been marked by all three of these things. Um, I know my life has. (laughs) And I just have to expect that that's probably also the same with you if you're being honest with yourself. These things represent false stories that we employ to make sense of our lives. They're not true. And it's why it's so important for us to see not only how the first story, first chapter of the story of humanity shows us the way things were supposed to be, how we see the ways in which our stories differ, but how we understand how that original story is meant to lead to the greater story of Jesus Christ, that story that you and I need. And so what does that look like? How do we see the greater story of Jesus unfold and become real for us? The beginning of the Bible is the story of Shalom. Shalom refers to a sense of peace. It's a word that describes wholeness, health, and completeness. It accurately characterizes the state of things in Adam's life in the garden. All he knew in Genesis 2, was perfect peace with God. He had everything that he needed, and he experienced unbroken and unmitigated fellowship, delight, and joy with God. Can you imagine that that's what Adam knew in his life? And yet, as we know, whether we are familiar with this narrative or we know deep down in our hearts, that peace was shattered when Adam and Eve disobeyed the commandment that God gave them back in Genesis two seventeen, And as a result, their stories and our stories were irrevocably changed. Instead of chaos being overcome by shalom and leading to rest, as we see in Genesis 1 and 2, now the shalom of Genesis 2 devolves into the chaos of Genesis 3, leading only to turmoil in my life and in your life. And we still feel it. In those falsely constructed narratives, whether it's selfish ambition, determinism, or cultural imitation, we try to establish a foundation of our own making, and we don't see the cracks and fissures that we know are there, but are determined to avoid, lest we become aware of the fault lines that exist firsthand. And in the same way, when we experience suffering or struggles, We grapple for some sense of stability and we construct a story to try to make sense of it all. But we try to fill up those losses with whatever we can to give some feeling of fullness, but we are still left empty. Here's the good news for us. That emptiness that we feel is actually needed if we are to ultimately see the beauty of the greater story. God will not fill something that we have filled without him. He will not impose his way upon us when we continually conspire against him and look with suspicion on his goodness in our hearts. It is only when you and I give up the charade that we give up pretending that our life is something that it is not, that the glory of God's true story will begin to take root when our shalom will mirror the shalom that Adam knew in the garden. That's when it happens. So how can this take place? How can our stories become the real story that God intends for them to be? There's one verse that I want us to consider that helps illustrate and capture how this takes place. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul will describe where we came from, and who we will one day be in Christ. He says this in 1 Corinthians 15:22, "For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive." Adam's story, though it began with Shalom, ended with death. You and I though we're not nearly so fortunate, we think our stories begin with a certain kind of perceived innocence, but because of the effects of Adam and Eve's transgression, we never truly knew a time when sin and its complex outworking were not acutely felt in our world. All we have to do is ask our parents how things were when we were kids. Not that you weren't a delight, but you, you weren't sometimes. It's there. It's there from the earliest days. Apart from Christ, our stories begin with death and they end with death. And that's what Paul means when he says, as in Adam, all die. But this wasn't the story of Jesus. Jesus entered a world that was marked by death But he allowed his own story, the story of being the eternal son with the father and the spirit before the world began, the story of the one through whom all things were made, the story of the one on whom that grander story of God's redeeming work rested. He allowed his story to become the story of death. He did that so that he could make it possible for our stories to be different. How did he do this? Of course, he was our example. He shows us a full picture of what life, as it was intended to be, actually looked like in human form. But he was so much more than that. He was the one who made it possible for our sin to be forgiven. He became our sacrifice. The entire witness of Scripture is the story of how God deals with the problem of sin that enters the picture in Genesis 3. In the garden, when Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden, it was the story of God providing animal skins to cover their nakedness. In the history of Israel, it was the sacrificial system that made it possible for Israel to see God's forgiving grace. All of those things pointed forward to the one who would become the sacrifice himself. The one who could satisfy what our sin demanded and who could destroy the one who had the power over death. The one who makes our stories marked by death loses his power in the death of Jesus. This is what Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 18, when he says that Jesus also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Jesus' story was the story of death leading to Resurrection the story of death bringing forth shalom. Those who believe in him for the forgiveness of sin and call upon his name as Lord and Savior are promised the same hope. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. In Christ, our stories, the story of your life and the story of my life, stories that on their own, are the stories of death leading to death, they can become stories of death leading to life, to ultimate shalom. And so knowing this, that the story of Jesus is meant to reframe the story of our lives into its truest expression, how does that actually start to make a difference? I wanna think about those three theological truths that we learned about when we looked at Genesis 2. There were three of them. Let me remind you. The first was God loves you and intends for you to love and know him. The second was God has authored your story and intends for you to see your life as reflective of his purposeful actions. And the third was that you will find the utmost flourishing and freedom as you submit to God as Lord. Those three things. How does the story of Jesus start to reshape those truths for our lives? So first, God loves you, and intends for you to know and love him. John will say it in this way in 1 John 4.10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent him, sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation just means the atoning sacrifice. This means that in your story, God's love in Christ needs to be the fundamental reality that motivates all other things. If we have that love, if we have received it, we don't have to look at other people through the lens of jealousy and selfish ambition because what else greater could we want? Second, God has authored your story and intends for you to see your life as reflective of his purposeful action. This means he is working for you and is working for your good. Paul will say it in this way in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Suffering is real. Pain is real. Loss is real. Futility, frustration, sorrow, they are real. But even more real is God's purposeful action in your life even more real. So many of us struggle with disappointment over what we feel is lacking in our life. But we don't realize that there has never been a loss that God has not intended to fill with himself. It's always been that way. And then third, you will find your greatest freedom as you relate to God as Lord. Self-constructed stories will never do it. This is because a life that runs from the truth of Christ is a life that runs from the truth of Christ. It's a false story. Jesus will say himself in John 15, that as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Living our lives as if they are stories we are free to create apart from the presence of God will never lead to rest because it is only possible to have that kind of rest as we abide in Jesus and follow him. That's the only way. So our stories were meant for God. Your story, Your life was meant for him and it will not find its truest expression until it finds it in him. Let's pray to that end. Let's ask God to help us. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We ask that you by your grace and through the power and working of the Holy Spirit will make true these things in our heart where we see the story of how you created the world, We see the inherent goodness and love with which you created it. We see the grace that was there even when human beings rebelled against you. We see the power and proclamation of your love in Christ through his life, death, and resurrection. And we now see our stories being given the opportunity to be made a story of death leading to life where we have fallen prey to false narratives of seeing the world only through a lens of half-truth. Would you forgive us? Would you help us to see things as they truly are under the banner of your grace? Help us to follow you in light of those truths as we look to Jesus beholding his glory and so being changed from one degree of glory to the other. Help us now as we come to your table to remember your broken body and shed blood, that we would see the assurance of your work in our life and rejoice in you. We pray in Jesus's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 1115, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.